The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. The question is, have I learned anything about life? Only that, only that human beings are divided into mind and body. The mind embraces all the nobler aspirations like poetry and philosophy, but the body has all the fun. The important thing, I think, is not to be bitter. You know, if, if it turns out that there is a God, I don't think that he's evil. I think that, that the worst you can say about him is that basically he's an underachiever. After all, you know, there are worse things in life than death. I mean, if you've, if you've ever spent an evening with an insurance salesman, you, you know exactly what I mean. The, the key here, I think, is to, to not think of death as an end, but, but think of it more as a very effective way of, of cutting down on your expenses. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, February 19, 2009. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today, where 519-661-3600 is a number you can call to join in on the conversation. And what we'll be talking about today is a number of things, not the least of which is the continuing, slow, smothering, and smoldering death of quote-unquote conservatism, brought to you by conservatives everywhere. That'll be a little later in the show. Major theme of today's show, later on in, uh, as well, will be, I'm going to introduce you to another character you may not have heard of, or you may be very well aware of. And that is none other than the wit and wisdom of H.L. Mencken and what he may have to say about today's current situation and what's going on in the world today. Talk about him later in the show. But first of all, you know, they're sticking to their guns on gun control and, you know, they're just shooting down the same old arguments over and over again. I was going to do this at the end of last week's show. We ran out of time. So uh, I'm glad I actually saved it for a week because I had another, you know, a few other things come to my attention on this issue of late. Now, last week I criticized uh, conservative Ezra Levant, or sorry, um, that's going to be a whole other whole, whole other issue we're going to talk about. Right now we're talking about uh, last week when t- David Miller, that's the one we want to talk about first, um, had written to municipalities, if you're aware, aware of this, across the country asking them to uh, join his bandwagon of banning handguns again, even though handguns are already effectively banned in many ways and certainly controlled in others. And I think this alone speaks to his incompetence on dealing with gun violence in his own city. When politicians are powerless to effect something, they resort to symbolic and destructive actions that make it appear that they are, in fact, doing something. And they are. They're making things a little worse. Now, people who believe that gun bans will reduce violence or decrease access to guns are probably a bigger problem than the criminals themselves in so many ways. And since such beliefs create the environment in which criminals operate and thrive. Now, London City Hall has reviewed Miller's letter and ostensibly put the issue on the back burner. I thought they would have thrown it out, but apparently not. With virtually everyone viewing the exercise as a waste of time, with the exception of controller Gina Barber. I just saw her uh, handguns have no place here in the free press uh, on February 17th. Just caught that yesterday. Though it offers nothing new to what she's already been saying in the public. In fact, it says a lot less than what she's been saying in the public. Caught her on a couple of radio interviews. And basically, let me see here, how many reasons did I have? Eight reasons, maybe, that she has, that she wants to see guns uh, banned. And here, here they are, the eight of them. Number one, it's symbolic. Okay. Number two, we don't need handguns. Number three, we're being consistent in our message against handguns. Uh, Number four, you're not a criminal until you use a gun. Number five, accidents and public safety. Number six, homicide as a result of gun use. And number seven, suicide as a result of gun use, which apparently, quote, leaves no time for social agencies to intervene. And eight, guns are lethal. (laughs) Wow. First of all, if it's symbolic, why are you doing it? It's obviously nothing real. 
if number two you don't need handguns well that's just not true the people who need them that's what i'm going to be getting into here but uh certainly when she talks about being consistent with our message against handguns what she really means is treating the perpetrator on an equal moral grounds as the victim you know barber stressed that we need to keep guns away from quote both law-abiding or not law-abiding citizens, so, which can only mean that criminality is not her concern or even an element of her concerns about guns. And, and that's very disturbing on, on the face of it. You know, if it, okay, we should treat the law-abiding people just as badly as the not law-abiding citizen. There's no difference, and that's what she means when she says she's being consistent with her message on handguns, or against handguns, as we'll say. Now, of course, Gina is a, a flaming socialist. Her views on guns are totally consistent with her views on all municipal issues. And I think the assumption that those who want to own guns are motivated purely by criminal intent is a reflection of a socialist belief that individuals are naturally depraved and therefore government must control everything. Once again, this projection of the socialist mindset, which is depraved and seeks to destroy by force of law the very foundations of choice and freedom, and, uh, you know, Barber expresses this egalitarian, socialist, amoral, immoral philosophy fairly routinely. And uh, she must somehow believe that a gun is a moral agent capable of acting on its own. She says, quote, I can't think of a single reason to possess a handgun. What legitimate purpose is served, she asks. Well, let me be clear about this just one more time, can we? The only legitimate reason to possess any weapon is for self-defense. That's it. And the fact you can use such a weapon for sport or for recreation is totally irrelevant and secondary to that purpose. And it's not a reason for anyone uh, to argue for gun ownership, you know, we want to play with the guns. You know, in fact, <laughs> the argument that we should be able to own a deadly weapon just for the purpose of fun, um, is that a better reason to ban such a weapon and to argue that it's necessary for defense of life, of liberty, and of property? Which is more important, uh, the fun or life itself? Oh, fun. Okay, well, you have to own a gun for fun, but if you're going to protect your life, forget it, buddy. You can't do that. You know, for some reason, those who want to defend gun ownership are resorting to an argument that often makes the opposite case, if you ask me. And, uh, and also the argument that, uh, quote, gun control doesn't work, end quote. Now, while that's totally true, it's irrelevant. I'd be making the same statement and the same argument even if there were no such evidence. A person's right to self-defense is not only valid if, quote, it works, end quote, in practice with other people who aren't related to him and he has no, no control over their actions. You just can't connect those two things. And then there's the, quote, end quote, guns are only for killing, end quote, scream all the banners, who themselves, by the way, have to rely on the government's initiation of the use of force against innocent people and who are thus moral, morally culpable of everything that they project onto gun owners when in fact you know, guns don't have to kill why do they always say that you can threaten somebody with one you can wound them you can maim them you can frighten them and you can repel a threat and that's how they're used in most defensive actions people when they kill somebody in defense that's rare and of course nobody gets off scot-free nobody's saying you can own a gun and just shoot whoever you want you still go to court you still get seen by a group of uh, you know 12 people of your peers in a, in a courtroom but you know socialism itself is such an evil philosophy it's no surprise that socialists want a disarmed citizenry since an armed citizenry ultimately has some kind of protection against the constant theft of their property money and rights all the problems we've discussed on today's and past shows are the perfect and direct consequences of collectivist thinking, from unemployment to crime. Blame the socialists and fascists. Ban, 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 ban. That's about the total summary of all of their philosophies. I want to thank listener Andy for sending me this little reminder. It's written by an anonymous American. And it's called A Little Gun History Lesson. Very fascinating. Now, I don't know who wrote this. I don't know if these figures are exact or to the point. Uh, but I think they make the point. I've seen this before. Now, for example, in 1929, the Soviet Union established gun control. From 1929 to 1953, about 20 million dissidents, unable to defend themselves, were rounded up and exterminated. In 1911, Turkey established gun control. From 1915 to 17, 1.5 million Armenians, unable to defend themselves, 
were rounded up and exterminated. Germany established gun control in 1938 and from 1939 to 45. A total of 13 million Jews and others who were unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. China established gun control in 1935. From 1948 to 1952, 20 million political dissidents unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. You're getting the point here, eh? Guatemala established gun control in 64. From 64 to 81, 100,000 Mayan Indians unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. Uganda did the same in 1970. From 71 to 79, 300,000 Christians unable to defend themselves, rounded up and exterminated. Cambodia, gun control, 1956. Then from 75 to 77, one million quote-unquote educated people unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. And it basically says defenseless people rounded up and exterminated in the 20th century alone because of gun control, which might be stretching the point a bit, but you get it, is 56 million. You know, Ayn Rand always used to say that the biggest danger to any individual in his or his life is their own government. Governments have killed their own citizens far in excess of any invasion by a foreign government, and that's always been the case. And I think this is one of the secrets that the early founders of the American Revolution recognized, and they're still fighting about uh, whether they have the right to bear arms, when in fact, uh, they, you, if you don't have that right, neither does your militia. Now, this is interesting, too. It has now been 12 months since gun owners in Australia were forced by a new law to surrender 640,381 personal firearms to be destroyed by their own government, a program costing Australia taxpayers more than $500 million. Can you imagine spending a half a billion dollar on a completely unproductive enterprise like that? Geez, I wonder, oh, Canada, yeah, we have that gun registry. We beat them. We, we, we went way past them. But anyways, Australia-wide, homicides up 3.2%. Australia-wide, assaults up 8.6%. Australia-wide, armed robberies up 44%. And then they've got in brackets, yes, 44%, because that's in one year. Uh, that actually reflects very much the drop in, in, uh, in robbery rates and things like that in cities like Kennesaw, Georgia, where they forced people finally to own guns because they were having such a crime problem. And in the first year, they had a 66% rate in, uh, in, in the drop of robberies. In the state of Victoria alone, homicides with firearms are now up 300%. Note that while the law-abiding citizens turned them in, the criminals did not, and criminals still possess their guns. It'll never happen here. I'll bet the Aussies said that too. While figures over the previous 25 years showed a steady decrease in armed robbery with firearms, this has changed drastically upward in the last 12 months since criminals now are guaranteed that their prey is legally unarmed. There has also been a dramatic increase in break-ins and assaults of the elderly. Australian politicians are at a loss to explain how public safety has decreased after such a monumental effort and expense was expended in successfully ridding Australian society of guns. The Australian experience and the other historical facts above prove it. You won't see this data on the U.S. evening news or hear politicians disseminating this information. Guns in the hands of honest citizens save lives and property and, yes, Gun control laws adversely affect only law-abiding citizens. Take note before it is too late. The next time someone talks in favor of gun control, please remind him of this history lesson. With guns, we are citizens. Without them, we are subjects. By the way, that, that word is a well-chosen one, because what are you subject to? You're subject to the force of someone else. That's the whole point of being a subject. During World War II, the Japanese decided not to invade America because they knew most Americans were armed. Note, Admiral Yam uh, Yamamoto, who crafted the attack on Pearl Harbor, had attended Harvard University 1919 to 1921 and was naval attaché to the U.S. from 25 to 28. Most of our Navy was destroyed at Pearl Harbor, this is an American view, of course, and our Army had been deprived of funding and was still and was ill-prepared to defend the country. It was reported that, that asked why Japan did not follow up on the Pearl Harbor attack 
with an invasion of the mainland, his reply was that he had lived in the U.S. and knew that almost all households had guns. <laughs> in fact, these are the very, very words of the criminals behind bars who were uh, you know, interviewed by John Stossel on a 2020 clip we played many months ago on this very show. Criminals, they love gun control. It's the best thing you could do for them. And, uh, and for the same reasons, that's why politicians like gun control too. going to leave you there with that. And when we come back on the other side, we'll be talking about, again, that slow smothering and smoldering death of conservatism. What has happened to conservatives today? Back right after this. On his day. (laughs) Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to join in on the conversation. Last week, uh, I criticized conservative Ezra Levant for writing a defense of Harper's bailout budget, really, and for advocating expediency and political power over what I would regard as principle and rational economy, even in terms of uh, conservatism. I'm not talking about my principles necessarily here, I'm just talking about the principles ex- as expressed by the people who claim to have them. Now, the knives have come out in the media, and a few of them, unfortunately, are pointed in the wrong direction, but most of them sort of in the right direction. Stephen Harper, conservative sellout, reads the National Post headline by Tasha Kierden. This budget does a huge disservice to Canadians, conservative and otherwise, who will not, uh, um, yeah, who will now be saddled with massive deficits and an ineffective stimulus plan based not on sound economics but pork barrel politics. Experience tells us that government intervention does not yield stimulus but merely redistributes the available wealth. The government cannot put money into the economy without taking it out of the economy first. Now, that's the point I was making at length last uh, last week. You can't get the energy from somewhere. You can't kickstart an economy with energy from somewhere else. It's coming from the same economy. It's that old dead battery uh, example. Another one here, Greg West in London Free Press, February 10th. Harper's spending leaves us reeling, reads the headline. By all accounts, the conservative Brinks Brigade is just getting started all of which should be putting taxpayers on high alert, he warns. As Federal Auditor General Sheila Fraser reported last week, the government spends billions of dollars every year with no clue what, if anything, it achieves. The Harper administration is about to shower millions of dollars on festivals, fairs, and other community events. Today, that's called stimulating the economy. A few years ago, it was called the sponsorship program. (laughs) Now, the funny thing there is, of course... uh, that's just it. You know, nobody, what's the, what's the payoff? How do you know when the money's been paid back? How do you know when someone's been successful? There are no guidelines. Uh, you know, they say, oh, well, it's only a loan. We're going to get it back. Um, maybe in the odd case, you might even. It has happened, you know, but it's not the general trend. PM has had to rein in high-minded economics, writes Don Martin, whose knives are pointing the wrong way, I think. Uh, Harper, quote, has arguably become the federal echo of a politician he often vilified, Ontario Premier, now Liberal MP, Bob Ray. Stephen Harper has created a new ideology of conservative pragmatism that sacrifices fiscal rectitude to political necessity. There's no room for right-wing or left-wing designations now. Make no mistake, the deficit splurge was necessary. If the Conservatives had refused to join in a world of bailouts, Mr. Harper would have been a former Prime Minister this week, having lost a Commons confidence vote on the budget, end quote. (laughs) Well, Don Martin, meet Ezra Levant. You know, (laughs) I I love this argument. There's no room for right or left-wing designation, so let's turn 100% totally left. Do they not see what they're doing? No room for right or left? They go to 100% left. If you're spending money like a drunken sailor, that's left wing. Lots of room for the left. The left is being totally, you know, <laughs> totally followed. Hello? Knock, knock. Anybody home? Oh, man. The deficit is necessary, he argues. Well, clearly not for anything to do with the economy or the betterment of the citizen, but to keep the current political party in power. He says that right, in, right there in his sentence. That's what it's for. You know, let's avoid the battle, and we'll lose the war, okay? Good good plan. We'll avoid the battle, and we'll lose the war. Conservatism, an obituary. Ayn Rand wrote it 50 years ago. 
And then there's the death of the conservative agenda by John Moore, who I don't normally agree with, uh, January 31st in the Post, quote, in accepting the need for stimulus spending and putting Canada on a course to five consecutive years of red ink. The Tories didn't put water in their wine, they just drank the water. The budget is so outrageous, it not only pays unprofitable companies to make cars, it provides consumers credit to buy them, end quote. Now, that's, that is a bang-on point. You know, they're, they're uh, putting money at two ends of a bad investment. Um, you know, I said this on a show before. It might be hard for us to, to, to get our heads around this, but I think the day of the automobile is over in the sense that we have known it. I don't think cars will ever go away. I don't think that will ever happen. But I think the idea of especially huge corporations building cars, especially uh, with imposed uh, you know, socialist obligations on them, all the pensions and things that are driving them under. Uh, in fact, I heard uh, one person say his company, his new company, is doing better simply because they don't have the pension load. Well, that, that should tell you something. Why, why are they paying a pension? Why isn't that already self-sufficient by the time a person has left a company? Sounds like it wasn't very actuarially sound to begin with, or somebody is looking for something for nothing. I think, think maybe... But definitely the one that hit the mark right between the eyes was uh, Andrew Coyne's February 10th editorial in the National Post saying Harper's Tories lost the plot a long, long time ago. And he asks, why is everybody so surprised the budget the Conservatives produced may have been uh, startling in some respects, the biggest spending budget ever, fueled by the largest one-year increase in spending ever outside of wartime, But it was hardly out of character. It was a logical terminus to a decade of climb-downs, reversals, and broken promises dating back to the first efforts to merge the old reform and progressive conservative parties. What began in fear and deception has ended in confusion and incoherence, predictably enough. So let us have none of these astonished little essays on how difficult this must have been for Stephen Harper, how the reformer who had entered politics to fight deficits had come to embrace them. Once... This would have been hard for him, but by now it is second nature. And spare us, please, from the cries of betrayal from stalwarts of the right who never imagined that a conservative party could produce a budget like this. Where were these people for the last 10 years? Which is what I was asking, too, even while, you know, during the election everybody was saying, you know, laissez-faire, Harper's laissez-faire. Throughout the whole election he said he was going to spend like a drunken sailor and nobody listened to him. You know, it's just like when you're in, you're in. You know, that's, that's it. Uh, you know, I'll tell you where they were. They were right by the party's side, writes Coyne, as far as conservatives go, urging it on. There is no betrayal here. They were all in this together. In all the frantic backpedaling of the last decade, as each long-held policy was overturned and each conviction of a lifetime was abandoned, the party never made a peep. Everyone, from cabinet ministers to the lowliest envelope stuffer, bought in. Everyone signed on. They were showing discipline. They were moderate and middle of the road. They had grown up. They understood that politics is the art of the possible. They were all incrementalists now. Above all, they were loyal to the leader and to the leader's abiding goal of a majority government. And so whatever doubts they harbored, whatever principles they recalled, they were placed in a blind trust for the duration. Can't have been all that hard for them any more than it was fun for him. Compromise is not, as a rule, terribly unpleasant or not past first or second time. After that, it becomes positively intoxicating. There are always crowds of fine fellows about to clap you on the back, to pour you a drink and crap, congratulate you on your newfound maturity. And each little compromise, each little partial concession, makes the next one much easier, and the next until at last you're giving up the great gobs for yourself without even noticing. In retrospect, well, I don't want to even get into this part, but he says, by the time uh, Stockwell Day was running for Prime Minister in 2000, the Canadian Alliance having replaced the Reform Party and Day having replaced Manning, a third or more of these, uh, all these, you know, basic policies were already gone. But the pace only quickened from there. By the time of the 2004 election, the newly formed Conservative Party was still vaguely interested in abolishing corporate welfare and still mentioned tax cuts, but mostly it was interested in telling you what it wouldn't do. It wouldn't cut spending, for instance, or much else that might upset someone somewhere. The party's founding policy convention in 2005 took things still further. Gone was any mention of referendums, for example. Spending cuts were out. Subsidies were in. The courting of Quebec nationalists, which Harper had once warned against, had begun in earnest. Probably the delegates thought they were making a prudent set of concessions to reality. 
in a bid to establish themselves once and for all as a centrist party ready to form a government. But in fact, they were only softening things up for the second round. The accession to power after so many years did not mark the end of the party's concessions. It merely provided it with the means to make still more, even more jaw-dropping than the last. On Quebec, on Afghanistan, on confidence votes, on foreign takeovers, on fixed election dates, on appointing senators, on corporate bailouts, until at last we arrived at last week's establishment of a regional development agency for southern Ontario. Oh my God, we're in trouble now. So they've given up everything they ever stood for, and what have they got in return? Pretty close to nada. They're stalled in the polls again. The fabled majority remains firmly out of reach. Those disposed to mistrust them are as suspicious as ever, while their own followers are now thoroughly demoralized. They have not moved to the center, they have only succeeded in shifting the entire political spectrum to the left. The Quebec experiment, likewise, is in tatters, Quebec more nationalist than ever. The destruction is total, the failure is absolute. Once long ago, there was an answer, a new party. But you can only do that once. No one's got the energy to climb that hill again. The harsh fact is that there's no longer anything resembling a conservative party in this country, nor any prospect of forming one. And conservatives have only themselves to blame. End quote. I can sure relate to that. And I can tell you from my own personal experience in politics and trying to get true free marketers and true capitalists and true people who believe in the things that conservatives so often say they believe in, together is their complete... Um, they're burned out. They're burned out by reformers, burned out by conservatives, burned out by libertarians. None of them who stick to their guns and who do what has to be done. I, you know, as I explained last week, the NDP's never been elected as a majority government in the, in the country of Canada. Yet most of their policies are in place. These are the policies that both of the that both Harper and Ignatieff are arguing about putting in place, and certainly that uh, that Obama's doing south of the border. Now, really funny. Just as I'm walking out the door today, coming into the show, I look in my mailbox, and what should be sitting there? But a piece of literature from the Harper government. Isn't that amazing? What a difference from the literature that I was looking at before that talked about crime, you know, controlling crime, specifics of this, specifics of that. You should see this one. This is amazing. Uh, right on the front it says, uh, you know, during this time of global economic challenge, Canadians expect that their government will focus on the economy. That means that political parties must put aside their differences and instead build on their common ground. Now, that's completely the opposite of what I think it should be. <laughs> What's the, why do you have a political party if your only purpose to be there is the same as the other guy, especially if you're in troubled times? Does that make sense? That's the time that you get up and stand up and take your, make your stand and have the fight. We should have had an election when Harper had his had his majority guaranteed during that coalition period. He should have gone to the governor general and said, let's have that election. My goodness, he just threw it right out the window. And you can see. Now, what's their common ground? Rob, Rob Peter to pay Paul. What else is new? You know, and, I, and then on the back page, you know, during these challenging times, we must all work to, together to ensure Canada's success. Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless terms. That's why the Conservative government is, one, working with business, industries, and provincial governments. Working with? What? Huh? You know, two, attempting to build consensus with the opposition. Well, now there's a fine thing that I want to see my Conservative government doing, building consensus and agreeing with the enemy that I'm voting against. And number three, seeking global solutions to global problems. Well, another wonderful, meaningless, meaningless statement. I don't know. It's, uh, it's beyond belief, really, isn't it? And that's why I think we need to take a break right now. And when we come back, let's take a look at the wit and wisdom of H.L. Mencken on life, religion, and on the better man. And I think he has a lot to say about what Harper and everyone's doing about the economy today. Back after this. It's been two years now. We've had time to review them. How do we feel about our government? <laughs> and the rest of you, Ron, we have no opinions. Move on. <laughs> Fine planet you have here. Okay. I think that explains all the empty pods in the parking lot, don't it? <laughs> empty pods, body snatchers, not a real audience. Here's another joke. Incoming. All right, I'll carry it.
Some believe what separates men from animals is our ability to reason. Others say it's language, or romantic love, or opposable thumbs. Living here in this lost world, I've come to believe it's more than our biology. What truly makes us human is our unending search, our abiding desire for immortality. From a flower to adorn the garden, to a theory that will rock the world. Some seek in death what they fail to achieve in life, building elaborate tombs as if to cage their own souls. Even as I write this, I wonder, will anybody ever read these words? Perhaps not. But if you do, then all I ask is for you to remember me. could not help but think of H.L. Mencken when I heard that particular clip out of the, the show The Lost World, because in a very real way, that's what H.L. Mencken set about to do in his life. Uh, just got a couple quotes for you here. This is, uh, I'll explain what I mean by this, note 14, okay, this is number note 14, written by H.L. Mencken. Human life is basically a comedy. Even its tragedies often seem comic to the spectator, and not infrequently they actually have some comic touches to the victim. Happiness probably consists largely in the capacity to detect and relish them. A man who can laugh, if only at himself, is never really miserable. And then in another note that is numbered 78, and I'll explain that momentarily, is he, he writes, The fact that I have no remedy for all the sorrows of the world is no reason for my accepting yours. It simply supports the strong probability that yours is a fake. End quote. And that's just a taste of Henry Louis Mencken who my, un my 1955 Universal World Reference Encyclopedia described as, quote, an American editor, author, and critic, born in Baltimore, Maryland in 1880. His newspaper experience was gained on a number of Baltimore newspapers. He was co-editor of SmartSet magazine from 1914 to 23. In 1924, he became co-editor with George John Nathan of the American Mercury. He was a sole editor from 1925 to 33. His pungent and idle shattering essays have been collected in a series entitled Prejudices, 1919-1927, His American Language in 1919 with its two supplements, written in 1945 and 48, is the most comprehensive work in this field. His other works include In Defense of Women, 1917, Treatise on the Gods, 1930, and The Days of H.L. Mencken, which was an autobiography he wrote in 1947. End quote. Now, my 1955 encyclopedia was published practically days uh, before Mencken's death in January 1956 at age 75. And, uh, you know, at that time I was only three, year old, three years old myself. And apparently his death followed a devastating stroke he suffered earlier in 1948. And that's uh, a long, long going there for it. But uh, apparently, uh, you know, he had referred to that as the official year in which he had, quote, end quote, died. And uh, from a biography of Mencken, it writes, quote, When death, long anticipated and greatly desired, came at last in January 1956, it appeared that Mencken, at 75, had indeed, to use his expression, reached the end of the chapter. But even then, if we consider Mencken as a cultural force, an object of national attention, such was hardly the case, for he had spent most of the last years before his stroke, in a very real sense, preparing to die, and then to live again as a writer through the release at stipulated times after his death of his correspondence, his diaries, and his recorded impressions of American life and letters in the first half of the 20th century. If to live again through his writing was Mencken's intent, he has succeeded spectacularly." End quote. And so reads the opening prelude to Fred Hobson's 1994 biography of Mencken, about 650 pages if you're into uh, biographies. And those stipulated times included the relative recent 1971 opening of his massive library correspondence in the New York Public Library, the release in 1981, 25 years after his death, of other confidential materials, including the diary he had begun in his 50s. And Hobson writes, quote, the publication of a substantial portion of the diary in 1989, even getting more current, created a furor that has yet to subside, an outpouring of reviews and essays, heated charges, 
and eloquent denials and defenses revolving around the question of whether Mencken was or was not anti-Semitic, racist, misogynist, disloyal to friends and associates, and generally misanthropic. That the politically insensitive H.L. Mencken would be resurrected a second or third time in an age of cultural and political correctness would have both amused and delighted him, end quote, writes Hobson. So I guess it's in some ways with the hope of uh, helping fulfill his prophecy and expectation on Mencken's part that I'd like to share with you just some of the reasons that Mencken's ideas remain just as relevant today as in the time in which they were originally written. Um, now, he wrote a bit of, of himself. Now, the book I'm now quoting some of his ideas from was actually came out after his death, and uh, it was put together by him, obviously, before he died, but he, what he basically said in the preface was this, and, he, and this is out of his book called The Minority Report, not to be confused with the movie of the same name. And uh, it's, this, the subtitle is H.L. Mencken's Notebooks. came out in '56. And in his preface, he says, this isn't a book, but a notebook. It's made up of selections chosen more or less at random from the memoranda of long years devoted to the pursuit, anatomizing and embalming ideas. Ever since my earliest attempts as an author, he writes, I have followed the somewhat banal practice of setting down notions as they come to me, sometimes in the form of hasty scrawls, unintelligible to anyone else, and then throwing these notes into a bin. It's very funny that he says this because it's a very technique I use to produce this show and do a lot of my, my own writing. Because one thing I learned was that creativity does not show up on command. And so when it suddenly you get that idea or something you have to remember, if you don't write it down, it's not coming back, folks. <laughs> That's one sad thing I learned. So I, start, I have these file folders just full of notes that, that often a single three-word three expression can lead to a complete essay I could write on something. But he writes in his, uh, in his notebooks forward, he says, As I grow older, I am unpleasantly impressed by the fact that giving each human being but one life is a bad scheme. He should have two at the least. One for observing and studying the world, and the other for formulating and setting down his conclusions about it. Forced as he is by the present irrational arrangement to undertake the second function before he's made any substantial progress with the first, he limps along like an athlete only half-trained. I sometimes suspect it may be the main cause of the blowsy vacuity which marks so much of the so-called thinking of mankind. What ails that thinking two times out of three is simply its disregard of large categories of essential fact, obvious but not yet observed. The most we can hope for in this world is to, the be to do the best we can with the miserable means that are at hand, and that is all I pretend to do by these presents. They are offered as notes merely, and not as anything else. He stresses this. If I could begin another life at this late point, I might have some expectation of developing them, and the thousands of like ones that still sit in my bin, into something properly describable as a coherent and even elegant system. But as it is, I'll have to spend my time post-mortem either brawling liturgical music, which I greatly dislike, or boiling in oil, which no one speaks well of. Thus, I make no apology for printing my brief and often crude memoranda, end quote. And uh, that's exactly how he went into the book. You know, the language of the time was straight to the point. It's blunt, it's crude, and, and, and often, sometimes, I think, that w the fact that we miss a lot of this language, we miss the points that are being made. Now, I put my own, uh, my own titles on these notes, and he had about, oh, three, four hundred notes in this, uh, in this book. Some of them are just one and two sentences, and I would say the longest one might be four pages, maybe, four, four and a half pages. But most of them are very short, few sentences, and strictly numbered, note number one, note number two, just like that. You might wonder what he started off with, just for the heck of it, what would note number one be? I, I title this one, No Respect Intended, and here's his note number one, quote, We must respect the other fellow's religion, but only in the sense and to the extent that we respect his theory that his wife is beautiful and his children smart, end quote. I've heard that quote said many, many times and used in many contexts. But, uh, you, you know, Mencken was, a, was an atheist, and, you know, you've heard this little fuss lately about uh, the atheist ads that are running in the buses um, where they said, you know, don't worry about God, have a good time, or something like this. Everybody's making sort of a, a fuss about it. Well, interesting Note number 69, are you having a laugh? That's what I call this one. And this is Mencken on, uh, on atheism and religious people. He says, quote, Religious people constantly make the mistake of assuming that the non-religious man is act actively hostile to the faith. 
This is certainly not true. The militant atheist, as a matter of fact, is commonly a man who is actually religious at bottom, and very often he ends his career on the bosom of holy church or as a Christian scientist. The average unbeliever simply does not care a damn. Religion amuses him faintly, as any other superstition amuses him, but it does not excite him. The number of such indifferent persons is much larger than is commonly assumed. They are not organized and hence make no public pother, but they exist in immense hordes and often and, and sorry offer a steadily increasing menace to all forms of Christianity. It has little to fear from communists and other such raucous enemies for what they believe in is plainly quite as absurd as what Christians believe in. Active enemy en en enmity, in fact, commonly prospers it. But disdain is something else again. <laughs> and in a note 79, which I titled Board of Gods, he writes, It is impossible to imagine the universe run by a wise, just, and an omnipotent God, but it is quite easy to imagine it run by a board of gods. If such a board actually exists, it operates precisely like the board of a corporation that is losing money. <laughs> kind of reminds me of the Q in Star Trek. Aren't they sort of set up like a board of gods? They have all these godlike powers and they sort of can't get along with each other. And, um, but interestingly, he says, uh, I call this one Note 298, on the seventh day he rested. Why well, assume so glibly that the god who presumably created the universe is still running it? It is certainly perfectly conceivable that he may have finished it and then turned it over to lesser gods to operate, in the same way that many human institutions are turned over to grossly inferior men. This is true, for example, of most universities and of all great newspapers. There's that tongue-in-cheek coming out. Now, this one, I think, is the most important thing he's written in his whole book. This is almost uh, profound. And I couldn't help but think of, of the Beverly Hillbillies in a funny sort of way when he talks about this. It might be an odd thing to bring to mind, but, you know, you've heard the story. Come listen to a, a story about a man named Jed, poor mountaineer, barely kept his family fed. Then one day he's shooting at some food, and up through the ground came a bubble and crude. Oil, that is, black gold, Texas tea. Well, the first thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. Kinfolk said, Jed, move away from there. They said, California's a place you ought to be. So they loaded up the truck and they moved to Beverly. Hills, that is, swimming pools, movie stars. And you know the rest. I only recite this well-known fairy tale because it is one of the many images that, um, that really is invoked by what I think is the most significant note in Mencken's Minority Report, the one that I would consider his title essay. Note number 50. This is the note that explains what and who the minority is. And I think it reflects a theme and observation I've seen uh, being strongly emphasized by other freedom advocates I've come to admire, particularly Ayn Rand and Isabel Patterson, John McMurray, Leonard Reed, uh, among, you know, and along with other great economists, though they each may have uh, disagreed on many fundamentals and philosophies. In this regard, on the importance of individualism and of what it truly means, I think I found them all to be in remarkable agreement. However, I think any of them were quite as crude as Mencken <laughs> with, his, with their analysis, but it is his blunt crudity, sarcasm, and intelligence that I think makes the point. This was one of the longer notes spanning two or three pages, but I've only focused on his comments pertaining to this observation. And uh, I call this, this is Note 50, The Minority Report, or Discovering Atlas Before He Shrugs and the Guardians of Civilization. And this is fascinating, quote, The existence of most human beings is of absolutely no significance to history or to human progress. They live and die as anonymously and as nearly uselessly as so many bullfrogs and houseflies. They are at best undifferentiated slaves upon an endless assembly line, and at worst they are robots who leave their mark upon time only by occasionally falling into the machinery and in so incommoding to their betters. <laughs> the familiar contention that they are at least have some hand in maintaining civilization, that if they do nothing to promote it, at least they do not retard it. This contention is plainly not valid, argues Mencken. If all human beings were like them, civilization would not be maintained at all. It would go back steadily and perhaps quickly. This is proved at a glance at Appalachia, the domain of, quote, the only pure Anglo-Saxons, end quote, left in the United States. 
The culture prevailing among these backward folk is precisely the same today as it was when the great movement into the West began, and they were thrown off from the stream of more intelligent and enterprising pioneers. Save for the infiltration of a few cultural traits from outside, they live now exactly as their ancestors lived then. They eat the same food, maintain the same societal patterns, entertain the same ideas, and tremble before the same barbaric god. If they have yielded to improvement in this or that in particular, it has always been against their will and in spite of their resistance. In so far as they have initiated any changes themselves, that change has been regressive. They are relatively much less civilized today than they were when their flight to the highlands began, and in many particulars, they are also less civilized absolutely. The torch of civilization is carried not by such miserable non-entities, but by a small minority of more restless and enterprising men. The members of this minority work in countless ways, and there is an immense variation in the nature and value of their several activities. But all such activities tend in the same direction. What they always aim at, whether by design or only instinctively, is the improvement of human life on this earth. They strive to make it more rational, more secure, more abundant. One of them may do no more than devise a new and better rat trap, or a new way to make beans, or a new phrase, but some other or some near tomorrow may synthesize edible proteins or square the circle. So you know he's saying here that the better man isn't you don't have to be an Einstein or a genius, just somebody who does something productive with your life and creates something to, to, to make life better for people. That's all he means. He's not talking about some, you know, upper class, though he calls it a class, and he, and he says that. He says, out of this class comes not only all the men who enrich civilization, but also all those who safeguard it. They are the guardians of what it has gained in the past as well as the begetters of all it gains today and will gain hereafter. Left to the great herd, it would deteriorate inevitably, as it has deteriorated in the past whenever the supply of impatient and original men has fallen off. This is the true secret of the rise and fall of cultures. They rise so long as they produce a sufficiency of superior individuals, and they begin to fall the moment the average man approximates their best. Thus we have an easy and accurate gauge of nations. Is their production of superior men above equal to or below the mean? Do they contribute more or less than other nations to the general progress of civilization? Apply this test to any existing country or community and you'll be able to place it on the scale. Obviously enough, the position of such a group as the people of Appalachia is very near the bottom, he writes. For a century or more they have produced next to nothing that is of any genuine value to humanity. Virtually all their men of mark have been men of wholly factitious and indeed of fictitious distinction political demagogues, theological obscurants, military bullies, and so on. They have not hatched a single man of science of any size, or a single artist above the level of a village poet, or a single innovator in manufacturing, trading, or any other practical enterprise. They have even failed to produce a criminal of any genuine originality. Compare their record with that of any community of better quality, say the population of Massachusetts, or Ohio, or Wisconsin, or even Delaware or Rhode Island, and you will begin to realize the gap that separates civilized man from his camp followers and parasites. If all the inhabitants of the Appalachian chain succumb to some sudden pestilence tomorrow, the effect upon civiliza civilization would be little more than that of the fall of a meteor into the raw sea or the jungles of the Amazon. Ouch. <laughs> Well, we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to have about two minutes to talk about my next subject. I am going to get it in, and uh, we'll be right back with what he had to say a bit on bailouts, and we'll finish that next week. Have we still got time there, Taft? Yeah, okay, we're pushing it. Go. I was out on the street the other night. This homeless guy asked me for money, and I was about to give it to him, and then I thought, he's just going to use it on drugs or alcohol. And then I thought, that's what I'm going to use it on. <laughs> People can be so harsh to homeless guys, you know. I walked behind this guy the other day, and this homeless guy asked him for money, and he looks right at the homeless guy. He goes, why don't you go out and get a job, man? Go out and get yourself a job. Like, it's always that easy. This homeless guy was wearing his underwear outside his pants. I'm guessing his resume ain't all up to date. I'm predicting some problems during the interview process. I'm pretty sure even McDonald's has an underwear go inside the pants policy. This guy's been living in the garbage for six months. What kind of job is he supposed to get? Hey, welcome to IBM, Smelly. Come on in, we got a job for you. 
Thank God you finally made it. That's your desk over there with the air fresheners on it. Make yourself comfortable. I like the look with the underwear. And it's casual Friday, so it's all perfect, but you might want to go with uh, those shoes later. Americans also love to recycle political slogans. In 1928, Herbert Hoover ran under the slogan, uh, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. And in 1996, uh, Bill Clinton revived that slogan, although his version was uh, pot, chicks, cars. <laughs> Just a couple minutes left to uh, deal with what H.L. Mencken had to think about, you know, governments bailing out uh, people. And, of course, that was called the new... That was called the, the New Deal at that time. And it's a good thing he's written these all in note form because I'm only going to deal with one note today. And I'll deal with the rest on a future show, perhaps next week. But he basically writes that, note 321, by the way, despite 10,000 New Deals, nothing whatever can be done in the long run for the man who is stupid and lazy and has more children he can, than he can care for. He not only engenders a great deal of misery in his own family, he also tends to destroy the happiness of his neighbors. He is indeed a wretchedly bad neighbor, as he is a bad citizen. His imbecility puts a heavy burden on better men and exposes them and their families with them to a long series of hazards that they should not be asked to face. Anyone having a child or children he cannot support should, uh, who, who proceeds to have another should be sterilized at once. Not something I would agree with, but you get the point. <laughs> it makes no difference whether his misfortunes are due to his own inferiority or even just to bad luck. Whatever their cause, he has no right to produce another poor fish to share them. Certainly even the most violent supporters of the doctrine that there is good blood in the proletariat must admit that it is socially dangerous to bring up children in, in starving households. The effect upon even a talented child of living on charity throughout its youth is inevitably disastrous. It will grow up cherishing the unsound and antisocial theory that its neighbors owe it a living. And that is really... The, the thing he, he stresses over and over again, he talks about Note 89, how, the, how it's a criminal deal, how the, how the New Deal, its only effect is to prosper the criminal class, which he defines as uh, the criminal, he says, believes, like the demagogue's client, that the world owes him a living, that it is not immoral for the have-nots to seize the property of a have. And that's really the basis of criminality and of socialism, which we'll be seeing a lot of, I imagine, in the coming months. Anyways, that's it for today. We are out of time for this week, and we hope that you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, we hope that you'll be right, stay right, do right, act right, and think right. See you next week. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Here's my absolute favorite American TV commercial. Dial 1-800-COLLECT and save up to 44%. <laughs> Folks, if I'm calling somebody collect, I'm saving 100%. <laughs> 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 <laughs>